0: Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.
1: Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics
2: needed a rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> a special Happy birthday shout-out today, guys, to our lovely friends at Prima. Happy, birthday. happy, happy birthday. Prima turned two on Sunday. Yes, two years old. Our fave, clean, climate-positive, family-farmed, carbon-neutral, and responsibly-sourced company is officially two years old. Whoop, whoop, mazel. And every product is amazing. And now for two years, they are in Sephora. Forbes called them the Patagonia of CBD. Love that. And they've been praised by the New York Times, Fortune Mag, and so much more. So, like, talk about a wild and amazing two years. Yeah,
1: I mean, how impressive. And just couldn't be more ecstatic to be a part of the Prima fam and to bring them to you all. So, Prima, if you haven't heard yet, has amazing, doctor-formulated, clinically-validated, high-performance products for the skin, the body, and the mind. Prima has a daily CBD capsule to help relieve daily stress and keep you focused. I also switched my skincare to Prima almost two years ago, right after they launched, and I have never turned back. My absolute favorite is the Night Magic Night Oil. It has actually forever changed my skin for the better. Vogue actually said, quote unquote, lately, I have been swearing by Night Magic. So here we are. And lucky for us, Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time 15% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co and feel better, look glowy, like a glazed donut every day.
2: <laughs> well, welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. We're back with a another Wednesday episode drop. And guys, this episode is... Going to take things and spin them all around, aka taking a topic that you may have previously thought was boring or a little dry, and I would like to say puts a little spice on it, a little zest.
1: Well, yeah, and also the fact that we all agreed and talked about the fact that we just were not taught this really much at all in school, let alone well enough in school. And that's just like learning about civics and learning about our constitution, which is really probably why the foundation of why we're all even here listening to this podcast today is just because we were not given the tools to fully be civically engaged.
2: I guess we should introduce like who is coming on the show, right?
1: Yes, 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 yes. Ben Sheehan, you guys. He is a former award-winning executive producer at Funny or Die. The man's funny. He founded... OMG what the fuck? Sorry, it's OMG WTF actually, because it stands for Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, and Florida, which are the key states. And he founded this to teach voters about state executive races during the 2018 midterms. And he also wrote OMG WTF Does the Constitution even say? And also OMG WTF is gerrymandering because Lord knows we probably have all asked those questions before in our lives. And he wrote these two amazing books to help simply and comically honestly explain all of these things that are so important to know, but just not enough people know them, which is again the foundation of who we are. So we couldn't be more excited to have him on the show. The Hollywood Reporter listed him as one of Entertainment's 35 rising executives under 35. And the projects he's been involved with have have reached over a billion views. So The man is impressive. He was also, I saw him on Bill Maher. He's just, he's incredible. And we're just so excited and honored to have him on the show. So let's get after it. Here is Ben. We are so excited to have you on the show. But to get started, we want to get to know you and kind of hear your background, your elevator speech, the whole deal.
3: Sure. So I was born in the seat of government, Washington, D.C. Oh, um, me too. And you were? Where?
1: Well, I was like right outside. I was in like Fairfax, but I, my dad worked in D.C.
3: So similarity there. My, so I was born in D.C. and then grew up just outside in Maryland. But my, I had one parent that worked in the federal government and another parent that worked with the federal government. And so I learned from an early age how government worked just because of the luck of the draw of having parents that that was their job. So I learned about it over the dinner table growing up. And I didn't even really get a civics class and a government class in school. I think I got one year in eighth grade. And oddly enough, my school was in DC. So you would think that maybe they'd make more of an effort to teach you what's going on a few miles away. But I studied politics in college. And then when I moved out to LA, I was working in entertainment. And I just always kept trying to find ways to bring it Together, so trying to mix the two. Uh, when I was at, worked at Funny or Die, I did a lot of videos that were political. Some with actual politicians. Some making fun of politics. Some simplifying issues. And and it. I worked for a a super PAC at one point that was a a digital video based super PAC that registered voters through digital video in 2016. I did, I started an organization for the 2018 midterms called OMGWTF that stood for Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, and Florida. Mm -hmm. And we focused on educating people about state secretaries of state and state attorney generals and governors and sort of the offices that were up in most states that year and what they did and why you should care about something other than Congress. And I just always kept trying to find ways to kind of come back to what I, I knew and grew up around because it dawned on me that so many of my friends, not because it's their fault, but they just didn't have the luxury of having a family that worked in government right. or their schools didn't really teach them. So they have this blind spot. And I think yeah. part of what I want to do with with my work and, and which is what you guys do is to take the stigma away from it and say it's not, it's not really your fault, you know, unless unless you yeah. had these advantages or your schools taught you, then you don't understand this. So that's I don't know that's probably a lot that's a long elevator ride. no
2: no that's like a good one and like I, I think we hit all of the buttons and to your point about like not learning it in school like I literally think my middle school like they're one thing they're like this is civics it was the DC trip like the eighth grade classic like let's have like a good three night like overnight situation and like walk around some monuments and they're like civics you're good good luck out there like it's just crazy that like that's like the case but I'm so glad that you're creating like a synergy out there between like people that honestly have no idea what's going on but like want to and you know like kind of create you know creating new spaces but of course those spaces also have like you're saying politics and entertainment like there's a crossover there how did those worlds collide for you
3: so i i feel like dc and los angeles are very similar cities like take away take away the 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 job titles it's the same vibe of like walking into a room and people are like saying you know hi and then like looking over your shoulder to see who else is in the room or who came it's just there's a complete there's a complete overlap between the professional your professional life and your personal life like a like 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 a, a venn diagram where like the center is by far the biggest part and that's not really true for other professions. I think a lot of, some professions have bleed over, but like if, you know, you, you say you work in a factory, maybe that's not your friend group at home. Or if you, you know, are like a graphic designer, you know, maybe you people like you're designing for, you don't hang out with. So this is a weird sort of two towns that have very large platforms and the they kind of are just like around the clock work schedules. And I don't know, it felt like a natural progression from yeah. one to the other and, and back and forth. It's probably honestly not the healthiest uh, way to way to live. You know, you kind of, sometimes it's better to have like a separation, but the dynamic is very similar. And so from like a functional standpoint, it was, it, it didn't feel out of place. But I also think that if our media isn't doing a good job of teaching us information and if our schools aren't teaching us, then where else do you get information? You get it from entertainment and culture. So.
1: Totally. That that connection, though, of like the political space and entertainment space and like L.A., D.C. and just having that same like who's in the room, who's here like that. Look it's in. so annoying.
3: I mean, I'm it's so, so over true. I've it. I've never
1: really thought about that. And I went to school in L.A. and then I've like worked in politics and on campaigns. And it's just like it is the same energy. It's the same kind of vibe. So I haven't thought about that connection. But yes, 100%. Swap
3: out senator for director. It's literally the same thing. <laughs>
2: One hundred percent. I'm dying at this. This is like <laughs> honestly, like this is like the best like tea connection that I've ever ever even. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna like use that at parties, tell all my friends, you know. Very relatable make, for all the people who friends. aren't
3: listening in in DC and <laughs> it's uh, like
2: yeah, it's up the fact
1: up. that they're both so unrelatable that it's like the entertainment industry in LA and then DC and just they try to be relatable, but
3: who says we're coastal? <laughs>
1: Um, okay, well let's get into your book, which we are obsessed with. It's called OMG WTF Does the Constitution actually say? Explain this book to us. what inspired you? like give us the whole background here too.
3: So during 2018 when I was having these events for my organization, like I mentioned, we were supporting candidates, it was a mix of support, but also just enter, educating people on what these people actually did. Like, why would you care about a Secretary of State candidate in Michigan if you don't live in Michigan? Why would you care about an Attorney General candidate in Wisconsin if you don't live in Wisconsin? Same for governor. So there was a lot of education that that went along with these events. And I would have friends come up to me and sort of take me aside, or 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 like felt like, it felt like they already looked embarrassed, like they had like an ashamed look on their face, yeah. and they would be like, you know, I thought the secretary of state was Rex Tillerson or like, I, I feel like what is a state secretary of state? Isn't that there isn't that only like someone the president appoint? And honestly, it probably wasn't even like that. It formed a nuance. It right. was like, <laughs> I don't know what this job is. Who are these people? Yeah. So, you know, why aren't you just doing one for the president? So I, you know, this happened over and over. And these are these are smart people. They've run successful business. Like they, they're they're yeah. very competent human beings, well put together, impressive individuals that have this gigantic blind spot about government, especially at the state level. And this kept happening enough times where I started researching civics education and government education. I was like, well, okay, I grew up in DC and my family worked in and with the government. So that's how I learned it. If you're not learning it in school, where are you going to get it? But also like, how much do we really learn it in school? And so I found this study conducted by Education Week that found as of the last year or two, only eight states require a year of civics or government between kindergarten and 12th grade. Great. So every other school either requires nothing or you get half a semester. But even a year in your 13 year, like, you know, education is not enough. So we're really and it, this is and much different. Than, level.
1: Like and at what level? Like it's when you're in like middle school when you don't give a actual shit and you will forget it in the next little months let alone like years when you're an adult when you actually have to kind of know it or even when you turn 18 when you have to vote like it's gone it's not
2: oh my god I don't remember anything from middle school besides that eighth grade trip which clearly did nothing for me so like retweet yeah
3: (laughs) (laughs) it's very it's a very stupid way to approach education in terms of civics but the weird thing is that we used to teach it a lot so in the wake of the in the wake of world war ii there was this huge like renewed national interest and we have to all learn about America and like embrace American history. And like, let's all, you know, pat ourselves on the back. And so late forties, fifties and sixties, there was this huge, you know, fascination or, or focus on, on civics new classes like foundations of democracy. That was a class civics is a class American government. is a class. U S history is a class. And then those classes in the seventies started to go away, but they really started to go on in the last 20 years. And so if you basically don't get that year of education, you know, where are you going to learn it? So I was thinking about all this and I was like, well, if I was to start at the beginning and talk about, you know, the government, where would I start? Natural place to start was the constitution. So I found my, ha- my eighth grade copy of the constitution that I was lucky enough to get <laughs> from my, my school, my pocket constitution. I started reading it oh and I was like, this is not an enjoyable read the grammar is very different the punctuation weird like the the sentences are I mean there's just gigantic sentences they're run on I, I can't really make sense of it, but I know that this is important info because this is how our country works. So, if there was a way to have this explained, where it wasn't just reading anachronistic English, you know, from over 200 years ago, but presented in today's context, but alongside the original text, so you can, you know, see see if you agree with certain things, or you can see like the part of the Constitution that I'm actually talking about, it might be helpful. It might be a lot more helpful than trying to part to learn, you know a language I mean old English is its own language basically to mm-hmm. learn a new language and the information why don't we just put it in today's parlance and I was looking at a lot of I hadn't didn't find a version that did this I found one for the 1950s and every pronoun was he so you can Wait,
1: I'm so sorry I like totally just don't never even thought about too. just the language itself like already like just legal jargon and the constitution is complicated to read but yeah like the fact that it literally is in old English and it's like when they tried to make you like read Shakespeare and like dissect whatever he was saying, I was like, I don't know what Shakespeare is saying. I don't understand this language. It's not
2: English. I definitely read it in my head, like with an accent. Like, I think (laughs) it's like, you know, your like inner monologue, like it is absolutely like an old timey wig guy, like British accent meets America type thing going on in my head. Like, I don't think I could like, which means I can't even process it because I'm like, it's just this weird accent that's happening. Like I'm not really reading it.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, that guy is the per- it's my inner monologue for everything, so it's not really much of a lead for like the Constitution. <laughs> that's he, my Siri voice. My, that's that's my exactly, inner voice. exactly <laughs>
1: the Zoom voice now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Who lets you know if you're being reported. Yeah. I I feel like it, it, that that was such a barrier. Part of it was the language, yeah. you know. Besides the the legal ease, so I thought of it as what if I was just explaining it to my friend over drinks. Like if I had a four hour hours in a bar tab somewhere and I was like sat down with the constitution like we're going through like part by part, how would I explain it? So I often found myself saying it out loud because I wanted it to feel like it was being explained rather than, you know, professorial or didactic or just like, you know, there's there's a reason that I think me not being a lawyer has helped with this book is because I think lawyers have to, they they like to make things complicated. Like it's actually kind of core to their business model. Like if yeah. things were simple, you wouldn't need, need a whole lawyer. lawyer. So like operating on like a complicated plane, it's kind of core to their whole business model. And I read a lot of like lawyer interpretations, and they were still pretty unreachable for what I deemed to be the average person. So I tried to explain it as if I, if I was really, dumbing it down as the wrong word, but just sort of modernizing it and simplifying yeah. it as much as possible. And that's really the the goal, so that you come away understanding the information, not, not that you're an expert. I'm not trying to lift the ceiling on expertise. I'm trying to raise the collective floor, because yes. I think it's a lot lower than we all realize.
2: I am
0: obsessed with that,
2: and I think that actually is the perfect segue into, or I have a stupid question segment, because we need to raise that floor, like you're saying. So. I mean, let's start with the basics. Like, what is the Constitution? Everyone throws that around, like, oh, because the Constitution. But like, honestly, like, what is it?
3: Well, it's a document that was written in 1787 by a, a group of about 55 people. And it is the supreme legal document for the United States. So it is it is it is what our, our federal government can do do and can't do it's what the states can and can't do and it basically sets up the entire legal framework for our country so there's nothing higher in terms of, of strength or power than the constitution it tells it says what laws Congress can is allowed to pass what you know if it's not in there Congress can't do it although there are some leeways that I, I that I can get to in a second. But it basically sets up the entire governmental structure and framework legally for our country.
1: And can you explain the Bill of Rights and where that falls when it comes to the Constitution? I feel like when I and probably most people think of the Constitution, like it's immediately like the Bill of Rights. And that's like maybe what the only thing that's in there. <laughs> like, can you explain the Bill of Rights and really its role in the Constitution?
3: Sure. So the Bill of Rights is actually the amendment. So the Constitution has seven articles. So those articles were written in 1787, and then they ratified it in 1788. And then it took effect on in March of, of 1789. But the Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. And those were ratified two years later. And they're actually all written by the same person, James Madison, who was one of the chief architects of the Constitution. He was like the note taker. He was the guy who he was literally living. I mean, this is how about this for a millennial? He was 36 and living in his parents basement when he was attending the Constitutional (laughs) Convention. He took all the notes. He was only 5'4", probably didn't have like the most active social life. He was really, really into the Constitution. And he studied all these legal texts from the history, international history and around the world and past governments. I mean, this guy was a genius. And it's funny because he's like five or six or seven on our list of founding fathers. But in terms of the constitution, like this is his document, his, this is his framework, his structure, like the separation of powers, the branches, like this is really... The first plan they went off of it, the constitution was all him. So he gets credit for having the most to do with the constitution of every, any single person in the seven articles. But he also wrote the entire bill of rights. He actually wrote 19 amendments, but only 10 ended up getting ratified. So it basically says what our rights are as individuals protecting us from a government because designing this structure of government, they wanted it to be different than what they had. England, which was a a monarchy, a king, a totalitarian regime. And so the United States to that point didn't have like a centralized government. It was a group of 13 states with a pretty loose agreement of like, we'll help each other in some capacity and like, you know, barely pitch in, but creating this more central government, there were concerns that it would be too strong. And so part of James Madison's getting all the states to get on board was to say, if you ratify this constitution, I promise you, I will add a bill of rights to specifically say what the individual is, is protected from in terms of the government can't, you know, fuck with that. So he wrote, these 10 amendments are ratified and it's everything from in the first, you know, freedom of speech and uh, freedom of religion. You can't establish a national religion. You have the right to protest. You have the right to complain to the government, right to the free press. There's obviously the Second Amendment, which I saw on the list that we're going to talk about in a second. There's your right to be free from, you know, unreasonable search and seizure. So like the cops can't just stop you for no reason and, you know, shake you down. They have to have a, a natural reason or suspicion you committed a crime. There's the... Fifth and sixth and seventh amendments have to do with the legal process. If it's uh, if you're on trial as a defendant, how the criminal processes goes, there's cruel and unusual punishment. And then the ninth and 10th are sort of overlooked, but they're really interesting. And the ninth says that just because we included a bunch of stuff in here doesn't mean that's the only rights that you have. There might be some rights that we forgot to include and what is in the constitution can't be used to deny the rights that we forgot to include, which is a pretty genius way of saying like, not only do we leave some stuff out, but it's not, you know, the stuff in here can't be used to minimize the stuff that we left out. And then the final one is the 10th amendment, which says that if, you know, the, the constitution doesn't say that the federal government has that power, and it doesn't say that the states don't have that power, then it's up to the states and the, the people. So it basically, theoretically, it's like an infinite amount of power that is at the state and local level, because the constitution specifically only lays out like the, the, the outlines of the federal government, but it can't go beyond what it's allowed to do in the constitution.
2: Which is wild. Also, I, I do think the ninth is pretty genius, because you are covering like every base. I mean, I also think at the same time, like leaves some room for some conversation, like if like every legal argument about right to privacy is all stuck around that.
1: Can you give an example of like something that's at least somewhat relevant of like what maybe has was left out that has been brought up
3: sure well i mean right to travel Right to to travel about the United States freely without you know like like crazy restrictions. Right to travel internationally. Choice is left out of the Constitution. There's nothing about abortions or or a a woman's right to choose. Although the Supreme Court, through Roe versus Wade, said that they do believe that under the Fourteenth Amendment and even part of the Ninth, that that is a constitutional right that that people have that right. Other things that are left out. I mean, you mentioned privacy, right? So like. We didn't have computers. We, didn't, right. we weren't thinking about like data privacy and, and shit like that. So that's something that can become a, a, a right that we all have under the night. There's, there's this thing called substantive due process. And I'm gonna make this, I'll make this very simple. Basically that you you can't be deprived of your right to life, liberty and property without due process of the law. So like the government can't take away, they can't kill you. They can't restrict your freedom or like lock you up. They can't take your your shit unless, you know, you've had a due legal process and you were found guilty. But inherent in that, the court has said, well, if we're talking about they can't take away your life, liberty, and property, then it's implied that you have the right to those things. So it's like you, you you, have a right to life. You have a right to liberty. You have a light, right to, to property. So that's called substantive due process, the assumption that you have that. So privacy kind of falls within that liberty part of that, if that makes okay. sense. That yeah. And that's in the fifth, in the yeah. fifth amendment, they talk about due process for the federal level and the 14th, they talk about it for the for like state procedures.
2: Okay, well, speaking of like the 14th and like getting like passed like one through 10, aka amendments, what's an amendment? Can you give us the lay of the land
0: there?
3: Sure, so an amendment is a change. It's a change to the constitution. It is something that is as strong as the original constitution in force. It is a, It is a simple change in addition. So we have 27 amendments, Total, including the 10 Bill of Rights. And the way that you, you, you pass an amendment, or I should say ratify an amendment, is pretty complicated. It's it's very hard to ratify or to, to ratify an amendment. So you need either, there's two ways that you can propose an amendment. You can either have two-thirds of the House and the Senate propose an amendment to the states to ratify. So that's 60 today, that's 67 senators and like 290 representatives. So pretty hard to get anyone to agree on on getting, you know, even 60 votes for the vote, you know, for a, a vote in the Senate, yeah. let alone 67. So right. pretty hard to, to get past that stage. If you were to get past that stage, it would go to the states. The other way you can propose an amendment is by two thirds of the states. So state legislatures calling for a constitutional convention. That's actually never happened in the history of the country, we've never had 34 states, which is what it would be today, Mm -hmm. call for a constitutional convention, it's not even clear what would happen at that convention if you would just have to talk (laughs) about the amendment you proposed if you could like, rewrite other things so that is definitely something that, that, that should be, you know, a, a concern for people if we were to get to that point, because it kind of just like opens the constitution to become Wikipedia. The way that you ratify an amendment. You probably get a lot of book sales of that. You probably, <laughs> would, probably would get have a lot of different constitutions. The way that you ratify an amendment is by having either three, three fourths of the States or the legislatures or three fourths of like many statewide conventions and congress can pick which uh, one that is but that's 38 states total are needed to ratify an amendment
1: okay well perfect segue again
2: what does it mean to ratify an amendment
3: it means to approve it to get it added to the united states constitution
2: i'm gonna use that honestly just in general life from now on like i approve something i'm just like i ratify that thanks thanks (laughs) so thank you constitution for giving us that bad boy but Speaking of amendments, we do want to talk about some hot topic amendments, and we grazed the surface on these before, like, a little bit, specifically the Second Amendment, which honestly, when I was thinking about this, like, I was really trying to stay away from puns about, like, smoke and fire and whatnot, but, like, I couldn't help myself. But with the Second Amendment, first of all, okay, what's in it, and, like, what is the origin?
3: So the Second Amendment is one of the, obviously, one of the Bill of Rights ratified, Approved ratified in 1791. It says that a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. So there's a lot of commas there. Probably probably a couple too many. Um, and the f- first suspense, on? well, I, I can't speak to the, the, the punctuation preferences, but <laughs> it does start with a well-regulated militia. So I think it's important to look at the Supreme Court's interpretation of this. The the well, I'll answer your first question. The, the reason it exists is because we didn't really have defense forces when the when the country was just starting out. We, yeah, we had an army and we we're an army, but we we're still building those. So you you still might not have enough people who have, you know, been drafted into the military or have volunteered to join the army and the navy to defend the country. So if you were to have a situation where you needed more people, how would you get those people to join, to take up arms and join. And so what the United States had was the militia. Militia was basically the the, the reserve forces for the the military, for the, for the army, really. And it said, you know, that people have a right to these weapons as part of a well-regulated militia. So that's sort of the initial reasoning for it. But it also functions as a check on tyranny, because if people are armed, it makes you less, it makes it less likely that like, the government is going to turn against its own people if everyone's got... Yeah.
1: Well, and we were just coming off of the revolution. But
2: that's a good point.
1: I mean, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it seems like it came from like the trauma of being under monarchy and having to you know, form a whole revolution. And obviously, with that, you need arms. And so now, though, obviously, the conversation has turned in, in a lot of different ways, but we can get into that. But I don't know, like what... so. Now, like, how is the amendment typically used, like,
3: in the law? So it's changed over time. So I think it's important to mention that you know there have been only six or so cases in the Supreme Court that have dealt with the Second Amendment directly. And and again, to, to sort of clarify, the Supreme Court is responsible for interpreting the Constitution and saying what it means, and interpreting federal laws and saying what they mean. So the Supreme Court, through their decisions, can change what we all. Uh, you know believe the constitution means over time mm-hmm. and that has happened with the second amendment so for the first you know 200 plus years of our government the second amendment was a, it's understood to have a connection to the need for a militia and by the way today the militia is the national guard and reserve so like the the US militia is 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 established as the national guard was established at the turn of the 20th century mm-hmm. so It has a connection to militia, militia even eligibility, but the first break, like big break in interpreting the second amendment came in 2008 with a Supreme Court case called District of Columbia versus Heller, where a decision was handed down saying that people have the right to a a hand, in this case, it was a handgun in the home for self-defense totally unconnected to whether or not they're in or want to be or eligible to be in a militia, which again is the National Guard and Reserves. So that's a pretty big break because it takes the Second Amendment into a totally different territory and just kind of focuses on the second half of that amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms and not the first half, which starts with a well-regulated militia. So it changed the court's interpretation. And this was, this was sort of compounded again in 2010 with McDonald v. Chicago. And a few years later, in terms of net, the, that second case, applied it to the state level and the local level, and then it changed the type of weapons that you have a, a right to have in the home for self-defense. And then there's another case that I believe the Supreme Court is taking up next term about whether you have a right for to have you know, a gun on you for self-defense outside of the home mm-hmm. while you're traveling, say, to a gun range. So- the, the real date to keep in mind in terms of when the Supreme Court said, you know what, this is what it means like a big change is 2008 that 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 moment totally disconnected the Second Amendment from militia eligibility service, all of that. And that's a pretty like big shift in interpretation.
2: Yeah, that is just such a crazy jump. And I feel like what's wild to me even more so is the fact that it is like the number one thing I feel like that people reference, especially people that like have no understanding of the Constitution or no experience in it. It's like everything can be rationalized by throwing like, well, because of the Second Amendment. And I just so I feel like it's so funny, too, that it even the way that that's done and maybe I just like have no great semblance of time, which honestly, no, I know that for a fact because I like still think it's like 2018 right now. But regardless of that, like 2008, like that's when that was starting to like really kind of take a turn. Like if you told me that was the mentality for the last 50 to 70 years, I would have been like, yeah, it kind of feels right. So it's interesting that that pivot point is a little bit further down the line and like closer to like where we are today.
3: Well, there's a really interesting video about this from an interview that a guy named uh, Warren Burger did. Warren Burger was a former chief justice of the Supreme Court. And he was a, a pretty conservative guy appointed uh, by a conservative president. And he, in like the early, it was like the late 80s, early 1990s, he talks about this changing, this push to sort of change the interpretation of the Second Amendment. And he, he, he doesn't really hold back. He goes off and he's like, this push to say that the Second Amendment is completely unconnected to militias or militia eligibility is, is, is a is a concerted movement it's an intentional movement by people and it's complete i think the word was hogwash i don't know so he 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 uses some like old guy term that's like I you're like yeah, yeah yeah you should be using that the same one that the guy in my head uses but i feel like people don't think about that enough and they don't realize that this this sort of newer interpretation while it is while it is legal i mean people who say that they have a, a right to own a gun in their home for self-defense like they're they're correct but the Supreme Court's only recognized that right since 2008 so it is pretty new this interpretation of the Second Amendment having nothing to do with malicious
1: yeah it's it's wild very hot button topic politically right now obviously with just mass shootings happening all the time and what really is the Second Amendment what does it do and like hopefully you know it's, people can get a better understanding of the Second Amendment just again due to. This political rhetoric around all of it and everything happening. But to move on, we want to talk about the Eighth Amendment, because that's also similarly kind of a hot button topic politically. Can you explain what the Eighth Amendment is first?
3: So it bans excessive fines and excessive bail and cruel and unusual punishment or punishments, I should say. And it's sort of, you know, it has a few different meanings. One is to say that, you know, the punishment can't be too harsh for the crime. Also, the punishment can't be too brutal. And what what is and isn't brutal changes over time, like, you know, hundreds of years ago, like, you know, firing squad, like that wasn't necessarily considered brutal or stoning people like hundreds of years ago, was it brutal? Like today, like we think those are Pretty fucked up or i think a lot of us do i mean some states until recently utah had firing squad and there's like a push i think in south there's carolina to bring it yeah, back right um so that the meaning of what is and isn't cruel and unusual changes over time as well as the uh, what excessive means i mean at the end of the day these are all subjective terms right it's yeah, like what's totally. your definition of they don't define excessive they don't define cruel and unusual and what they thought was cruel unusual. they're talking about they the people who wrote wrote the constitution specifically James Madison, I guess, since it's, you know, Bill of Rights. What he thought was cruel and unusual over 200 years ago is maybe not what is cruel and unusual today or excessive.
1: Can we also go on like a quick tangent too? Can you kind of explain the different ways that the Constitution can be interpreted?
3: Well, I can explain the, you mean like methods, like originalism and that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So originalism is this school of thought where if we have to put ourselves in the, in the shoes and the mindset of the people who wrote those words and what those words meant to them at the time that they were writing it. That's a school of thought that is, is probably most popular because of uh, Justice Antonin Scalia. And it's uh, basically to say that, you know, what they intended at the time that they wrote it and what those words meant to them at the time is what we should go by. And there's also this school of thought called textualism. An example of a, a textualist judge is Neil, the judge who's currently on the Supreme Court. And it's a little different than originalism because it's saying what is in the text is what they intended. Not, doesn't not matter as much about what they were thinking at the time that they wrote it. It's not like their motivation. If they, if they really had wanted us to follow that, then they would have written down what they were thinking. Right. Uh, so let's just go by... The text and sometimes that leads to you know maybe more conservative decisions sometimes it means leads to more liberal decisions you know most famously a year or so ago maybe it was two years ago the supreme court um, ruled that you know employment discrimination on the basis of being gay or lesbian or transgender is unconstitutional and it was justice gorsuch who voted with the majority and actually wrote the opinion and he said you can't we can't fire people because of their sex that's in the Civil Rights Act. And you can't disconnect sexual orientation or transgender status from sex. They're, they're literally part and parcel to those definitions is sex. So it's connected. You can't tether them. So therefore, firing somebody because they're gay or because they're transgender is just as unconstitutional as if you fired someone because they were a woman or a man. Right. or I should say cisgender women or men. So that is, those are two different interpretations. And there are others beyond that. There are some people who think that we should just adapt it to the times and, you know, what those words maybe mean today. But those are kind of two large schools of thought that often come up when talking about interpreting the constitution.
2: No, that's like a really, really helpful context moment, especially because... I feel like whenever there's a news moment where a judge comes out with an opinion that seems like against their normal scope of things, especially someone on the conservative side, there's a big hubbub about it. It's like, oh my God, maybe they're not as conservative as we thought. But meanwhile, it's like, because they're interpreting the constitution and they have a certain school of thought about that, it's more than just what's being said in a courtroom about a specific case. It's the context beyond that. So I think it's really important. For us to have like had this little conversation and get that background on like what context they're actually using.
3: And I think it's worth mentioning that justices are not elected. They're not partisan. We can say that they're conservative, but like they're not like Neil Gorsuch isn't in a political party. Like he, he's, he, he wasn't chosen as a Republican. He's not representing a group of like voters like he is. He's a judge who serves for life unless he quits or dies or gets impeached and removed, which has never happened. So it's basically a lifetime appointment. But they're supposed to be arbiters of what they think is the rule, what the law says and means and what the Constitution says and means. And it's supposed to be pretty nonpartisan and balanced. Obviously, people bring their own biases. But if you look at the court today as as conservative as it is leaning, you know, they do agree in unanimity 40 percent of the time. So 40% of the last term results like or, or cases were decided nine to zero with all justices in agreement. And it's only like 25% of the time, I think that it's a 5-4 decision. And it's also different combinations of 5-4. I'm not saying that the court isn't leaning conservative, it obviously is. Right. But I do think that, you know, when you talk about some of the the decisions and like I I I don't think the problem with our government is the Supreme Court I think the problem with our government is Congress that is that's where the rot is is coming from and until we deal with that directly then you know I think we should worry less about the court and worry more about the branch of government that has the most power which is Congress
2: yeah just feel like the filibuster is just like irking to come out of my mouth with that in mind Mm -hmm. but we won't we won't tangent too much, right. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. But we do have some questions about the 15th Amendment as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I don't know if I want to like read this in like a really dramatic voice, but like maybe. So it says this or it declares, the, it declares the following. <laughs> this is why I never was in theater. I was
3: oh, acting class. Oh, okay. I know. I was about to say,
2: I'm coming to LA. That's what's happening. It's fine. Can't wait. Right. Okay. I'm I'm glad we're on the same page, but back to this. No, no, I lost it. Damn it. <laughs> British accent out the door. Okay. With the right of citizens of the United States vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. It also shares in section two that Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So what exactly does this mean? Does it mean that this amendment only matters if proper legislation is passed by representatives? Or is there like some other like element to this that, you know, we should know about?
3: Well, it doesn't mean that the amendment only matters with if a law is passed, but basically it says that in order to make sure that the first part of that amendment happens and that states and the federal government follow it, the Congress can pass laws to make that happen. One very famous example of that is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So Congress said, you know, there there's this problem that is happening in states in the South where people are still being denied the the right to vote. And there are, you know, for example, like in Alabama, there's a, a county that is only letting people register to vote on like, you know, every fourth Sunday, there are and it's only for like a couple hours, there are people, you know, Modern versions of it to like today, like closing polling places in African American districts. You know, back in the day, it was making people take poll, uh, a literacy test to vote. If you couldn't read the Constitution or like memorize parts of the Constitution, you weren't allowed to vote. And some of these quote unquote literacy tests had nothing to do with literacy, like counting the jelly beans in a jar and bubbles on a bar of soap. And there were grandfather clauses that exempted white people from having to do these. Ridiculous tests saying that if your grandpa was able to vote, then you're able to vote. So it is basically, you know, there's a long history in this country of voter suppression, and so that amendment was specifically written in 18, or it was, I should say, ratified in 1870. And this is four years after the end of the Civil War, and in the four years after the end of the Civil War, you know, we kind of learned that, like, at least in my school like we learned like the civil war happened and like that ended and then things were okay but they weren't great enough like there was a huge reaction to the end of the civil war it wasn't like southern states just kind of were saying, okay, you guys won. Like, we're sorry. No, they continued to fight it. They just didn't do it as an army. They continued to fight it in paramilitary groups, like the most famous one being the Ku Klux Klan. There was also the Red Shirts and the White League and the White Liners and the Knights of the White Camellia. I mean, there are all these like ter- terrorist organizations with hundreds, if not thousands, of members, all people all throughout society who were continuing to fight the civil war in the sense of terrorizing African-Americans and people who sympathized with African-Americans in terms of their, their, their recent citizenship, their voting rights, the end of slavery. I mean, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, in my opinion, are the most consequential and probably important parts of the constitution in terms of helping it live up to the ideals that were in the declaration of independence, talking about how every man is created equal. It really wasn't until the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments that that became a reality where African-Americans were no longer made Slaves. I mean, putting putting prison labor aside, the existing system of slavery was no more. The Fourteenth Amendment granted them citizenship. The Fifteenth Amendment gave them and, and equal protection of laws in the Fourteenth Amendment. The Fifteenth protected their voting rights from being taken away on the basis of their race. So, this is you know the there was a lot there were a lot of laws being passed at the time to. Enforce the words of those amendments because Southern states were rebelling. They didn't want to let people vote. That's why they created poll taxes and literacy tests, whites only primaries. So you could only, you know, they couldn't stop you from voting in the general election if you're Black. But what about a primary? The the amendment doesn't specifically say you, you know, you have the right to vote in a primary. So they do whites only primaries. And I mean, this just went on and on and on. So in 1870, like this was top of mind, it was the Republican Party that were the champions of the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments and people like Thaddeus Stevens and all these like brave senators who risked their lives to help, you know, get these amendments to propose these amendments, get them get them proposed to the states and, and then ratify them. So it was. It wasn't enough to put it in an amendment. It was it, people could find ways around it. For example, like the black codes, right? They said you can't, you can't. You you know, slavery is illegal, but then obviously there's that part about you know, unless it's punishment for a crime. But the black codes were state laws that basically said you know they were everything from you could be stopped on the street if you were black, and if you couldn't provide proof of employment, you were arrested and thrown in jail, and your punishment was to go, you know, was service on the same plantation you just were freed from a few years earlier. So it was all these workarounds. So that part, that section two is basically addressing the workarounds and all the loopholes that people could come up with. So using legislation to fight the loopholes, to enforce the mission and the idea of the first section of that amendment.
1: Yeah. And right now we're seeing a lot of kind of just like modern day now voter suppression, especially in the last couple of months. Is the 15th amendment a protection for some of the things that are trying to be pushed through right now in some states like florida and georgia and texas is are there fights being pushed out right now and is the 15th amendment what could i don't know like fight against some of those like state voter restriction laws or what's kind of going on there
3: well in in theory yes it, it, it is. But in practice, it, it isn't protecting people from, from that. And I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, talking about the Supreme Court, there's a reason that all of this is happening right now. And it's because in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down a part of a law, a part of the Voting Rights Act. That said, states with a history of discrimination have to get permission from the federal government to change their voting laws. So like if Alabama, you know, in, you know, before 2013 was like, you know, we're going to ban, you know, voting on Sundays and we want to do that. They couldn't just do that. They'd have to get the federal government's permission. The federal government would look at it and go, well... Why do you want to do it on Sundays? That's pretty interesting because there's this whole thing called souls to the polls where African-American churches have these big voter drives. And after you you know, go to church or or you leave church early and you go vote together, like that seems that that would have a disproportionate effect yeah. on this group of people. So no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. But in 2013, they they struck down the part that said states have to get permission. So now Alabama, if, if they wanted to do that, they don't need to get permission to oh, do that, wow. by the way. Texas literally last week, I'm not that's not a hypothetical example. They literally yeah. just tried to do that. Yeah. They right. tried to ban voting on on Sundays, or at least the the chunk of Sundays that, you know, African Americans and through souls to the polls were going to vote. So with that protection gone and Oh, wow. Yeah. There are all these voter suppression laws that no longer need permission from the federal government in order to go into effect. And so you have people, you know, passing states passing laws like, you know, if you haven't voted in a couple elections, you know, we're going to send you a postcard. If you don't return the postcard, we're kicking you off the voter rolls. If you if your name doesn't exactly match, you know, the registration form and your ID if like, you know, say you have a hyphen last name and the hyphen's not there too bad it doesn't work a signature matching laws you know certain level of strictness saying that if the signature doesn't exactly match you know then we can throw out the ballot if it's a mail in ballot i mean all these vote these things that sound like administrative in practice but if you look at who they impact disproportionately it always comes down yeah. to people of color so right. or sometimes low income people or or young people but this is this is this is a history, and and so what that that second portion is so important because you have to come up with new laws to address the loopholes that yeah. are now are now continuing to 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 operate and really operating in a in a new way that we haven't seen since before the sixty five Voting Rights Act.
1: Yeah, oh my gosh, that's crazy. I didn't know about. You said twenty thirteen is when that.
3: Yeah. yeah it's called Shelby County versus Holder. It's a really a crucial and pivotal moment that basically took away a huge now not the entirety of the voting rights act isn't gone but like yeah. that was a pretty important part.
1: Right, totally. But
3: so you're saying that like, you know, look that you know states change and people change and it's it's unfair to say that these states that were you know problematic in terms of passing discriminatory voting laws 48 years ago it's not the same states you can't hold people accountable basically racism's over guys it's fine yeah so right? they they struck that down so there are proposals to reinstate that people have made the argument that we could make it for every state instead of just those 11 or I think it started with seven and then up to 11 and then it was like counties in certain states mm-hmm. but the point is is that that moment in 2013 basically opened the floodgates for states to come up with all these voter suppression yeah. laws so that look administrative on their face but in right. practice have a very disproportionate effect
2: totally. which I also just feel like is I mean a lot of issues obviously with that court case on so many levels but like I feel like almost like it brought like so much more renewed attention to the whole situation. Like I, you know, I feel like it's obviously the floodgates to the result, but it's like sort of like knocking on everyone's door, of like, hey guys, what loopholes are we going to come up with tonight? But it's just interesting that like, that's where the court case A landed and B that like people were at the ready. Like I just feel like with the floodgates and like, people were just there.
3: Well, you know, that, I think that's a, that's an important way to phrase it, that it was, it was, it was always like there lurking underneath. And that's that's sort of yeah. sadly the history of this country. And I don't think it's an accident that it's happening. And now, it it, now there are states that by the way are not Southern weren't previously covered under the Voting Rights Act that have passed suppression laws. So it's not specific to the South, but it's worth noting that the highest populations of African-Americans in states happen to be percentage wise happen to be in Southern states. And as the populations and demographics change, political power, at least the electorate, looks a lot different. So I think part of what is happening is you have a changing population, changing electorate, and so you're getting these tensions in, in certain states. And people who are in power, who have gotten to power through the way, you know, the, the laws that are currently in effect, they, they want to stay in power. And so they want to change laws to keep their status in, in power.
1: Yeah. But that is that is it for our constitutional lesson today. But if you are willing to come back, we would love for this just to be part one because there's a whole, you know, just rabbit hole we need to go down regarding the Constitution and learning more about it. And before you go, we would just like to give you the mic to plug anything and everything from social media to other projects you're working on and all, all the things where people can find you.
3: Sure. So my social media is at Ben Sheehan on Instagram and it's at that Ben Sheehan on Twitter. The projects I'm working on, I'm doing a, well, the kids version of my book comes out in September, at the end of September. So that's for ages eight to 12. It can be pre-ordered right now on Amazon. My adult book is is available everywhere now. So hopefully there are some things I can announce very soon other additional projects but we can start those love it
1: amazing well thank you again this has been very fun very informative and that's what we look for here at girl in the gov so we're just so excited to have you and again hopefully this can just be part one and we can dive in deeper another time
3: well when i come back i hope that samantha does her full old english oh, accent. That's, that's 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 my requirement
2: next time it's going to be chef's kiss and we're just going to, like, knock the socks off. I can't wait. Just oh, I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Okay, well, top stories of the week. First one is something you may have seen really plastered all over Fox News if you switched that channel at all recently on social media, memes, all the things. The best one was for sure the letter from Jersey Shore that was made into a meme with the Fauci email. But this story um, is all about sweet Anthony Fauci. We know he has been really the face of our country's COVID-19 response. And he, in in the last week, 3,000 pages of emails of his were obtained Through the Freedom of Information Act. And so we kind of got a glimpse into really what was going on on his end from even the early stages of the pandemic. And as we also know, Dr. Anthony Fauci has been a political lightning rod since the early days of the pandemic. And obviously the left have kind of named him a hero, but the right has kind of been very critical of him. So with the release of all these emails the past week, Republicans' political attacks on Anthony Fauci have really gone into overdrive in the past week. So on conservative news channels, Anthony Fauci is kind of being portrayed as really a liar, and they are claiming that he misled the American people about the origins of COVID in order to protect the Chinese government, and there's frankly just no evidence of this or really any wrongdoing, and you can really read through the emails and see that for yourself, but this was kind of a way for conservative news channels especially to paint this picture and kind of confirm their narrative that they've been pushing for the past over a year, just questioning this pandemic and its real like validity even. After all of this, Republicans are now calling for his resignation and have demands for new investigations into the origins of the virus. And so Fauci's new released emails, which span the early days of the pandemic, were obtained by BuzzFeed News, which is like, okay, BuzzFeed, and the Washington Post. They really show no evidence, again, of any kind of cover-up about the origin of the virus. Indeed, many of these discussions reflect the science of the time, but Republicans, including obviously former president Donald Trump have seized on the emails as proof to like confirm conspiracy theories about the source of the virus, which they're, you know, have kind of claimed everything under the sun. But in one email from February 1st of last year, Um, A researcher at Scripps Research Institute wrote to Fauci about ongoing efforts to decipher the origin at the time, the lab leak hypothesis, was largely dismissed by experts, and it has recently gained traction, though the origins of the virus still remain unknown, as ever. (laughs) And so, sweet Fauci, he said, as I have said many times, we seriously considered a lab leak a possibility. However, significant new data, extensive analysis, and many discussions led to the conclusions in our paper. What the email shows is a clear example of the scientific process. It's just science, boring, I know, but it's quite a helpful thing to have in times of uncertainty. <laughs> there was also some incredible like emails about all of the just viral moments he had and how like everyone was like calling him hot and like his reaction to just people like fangirling over him, and it was just so cute. He's just the cutest. But Overall, if you see, you know, kind of these conspiracy theories being pushed out, it really is a lot of political rhetoric um, being pushed out to confirm, again, this narrative that like Fauci is the devil and the coronavirus is fake and was intentionally leaked by labs to kill people. I don't even know. But that's the story. And... What a munchkin. Such a munchkin. I honestly, yeah, definitely suggest doing a little deep dive and seeing some of the funny ones. Of course, like go read, like, the informative ones, but the funny ones, too, because he's just gonna be cuter. Again, I can't.
2: I just wonder if there was ever a point in his career where he thought he would be, like, in this position in so many ways. Like, not just, like, okay, like, here's a pandemic leading, like, the charge, but being, like, this person on, like, this pedestal for, like, good and bad, you know, depending on, like, what camp you're kind of in, right? But, like, I just, I feel like that's always funny when people kind of blow up like this.
1: No, yeah, he's literally, like, a god to half the country and then, like, the actual devil to the other half. And it's just, like, it's wild and he, you know, now has security following him everywhere and I'm sure he just wants to live, like, a simple, like, little kind life. But he is... He's a hero. He's battling a global pandemic for us and we couldn't stand anymore.
2: Literally... Could not stand anymore. Anyways, I guess we should talk about someone that I dislike at the moment. Let's hear it. So... Good old mansion, you know. When we're talking Democrats, that definitely get some attention and some heat for. He's just fake. Their views. He's just <laughs> fake. He's a total. He's such, such a, a phony. phony. Oh. Jinx. Wow. Oh my god. <laughs> we're gonna have to work something out of like what are jinxes because like I don't drink soda really Neither. So okay. I, I wow. Find alcohol. <laughs> I, I, I was gonna say unless it's soda like a vodka soda.
1: <laughs> Twist my arm. There we go.
2: Okay. Vodka sodas aside. So let's just go through what's happening with like the least favorite Democrat of the moment. So Manchin, a.k.a. Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Democratic senator, says he will not vote for what would be the largest overhaul of the U.S. election law in at least a generation, leaving basically like basically no plausible path forward for the legislation that his party and the White House have portrayed as crucial for protecting access to the ballot. He says, I think it's the wrong piece of legislation to bring our country together and unite our country. And I'm not supporting that because I think it would divide us further, Manchin said. He also said he believes Republicans will see the need for a bipartisan deal, which I'm sorry, what reality do you live in Anyways, the bill would restrict partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts. Oh, how awful. Strike down hurdles to voting and bring transparency to a murky campaign finance system. Again, ugh, oh, how awful. Among dozens of other provisions, it would require states to offer 15 days of early voting and allow no-excuse absentee balloting. I mean... Like, what the hell is
1: wrong with that?
2: <laughs> I can't.
1: Another kind of, I guess, new... Information on this story and on this bill is that the Koch brothers, which we haven't talked about ever on this show, but they are a massive, massive funder and influence in politics, especially Republicans. And they are actually funding a bunch of senators right now to really push back against this voting rights bill. Like I'm talking millions and millions. So there's also that in here which is just an interesting aspect and it'll be interesting to see also like who gets exposed on that front but continue maybe it will be mansion we'll see
2: fair very fair and like for background like conservative state west virginia typically is a red state so the fact that you know he's trying you know like like any of these cases that are not cases any of these issues that we talk about or any legislative points like the context is always key and Same with the constant campaigning that happens. And so he's looking at this, like, from a strategic point of view of keeping his seat more than, like, anything else, which is just ridiculous because, like, use your seat to actually do something productive and good for the people that you represent. But, like, hey, again, my opinion, my opinion um, could be fact, but also opinion. But regardless, a little bit more backstory here is that Democrats have pushed legislation as antidote to a wave of restrictive state voting laws, which have been sweeping the country many of them inspired by former President Donald Trump's false claim of fraud and his 2020 election loss. So Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, good old Schumer in his little bike ride. I just love him. Anyways, well, I love him in that ad because it's just so freaking cute and grapple. But anyways, he has pledged to bring the election bill to a vote the week of June 21st, testing where senators stand. But without Mansion support, the bill has no chance of advancing. Republicans are totally united against it. So just a little asterisk here, it's like if Manchin maybe were who's supposed to be quote-unquote the middle-of-the-road Democrat that has some obvious interests of working with Republicans and also keeping his Republican kind of base-like state on his side. If he's against it, it really puts the nail in the coffin because creates a situation where his colleagues on the Republican side that sometimes can be swing votes doesn't put them in a situation where they're going to hop on over. Manchin's opposition to the broader election spills, just the latest challenge facing Democrats as they debate how to deliver their promise to voters. Manchin reiterated that he would not vote to weaken or eliminate the filibuster another conversation we've all been having, root route that many Democrats see as the only realistic path forward to getting things done. The filibuster rule requires 60 votes to pass most bills, and in today's Senate, which is split 50-50, it means many of Democrats' biggest priorities from voting rights to gun control are basically DOA. They're dead on arrival, like literally DOA, which is ridiculous. And it is so absurd because it means, technically, if you think about how those numbers act, the minority is the one that's winning. Like literally, like it doesn't even make any sense. Like I'm bad at math and that does not calculate. So anyways, the takeaway here is that Joe Manchin is a party freaking pooper and he's literally yeah. killing any aspiration. A very important bill. Very important bill. And honestly, it's like this bill is bipartisan in nature aimed to protect all voters like it's so funny to me that this has become a partisan thing well it
1: did after this literally last election i mean obviously there's always been a push for red states and republicans to honestly not be huge advocates of everyone being you know pushed to vote because that historically and looking at data does not help them when everyone votes. So that's why they tend to not want voter access, voter reform, any of that stuff. But yeah, I mean Mansion, I don't know which like what this is about, but we we got to have a talk. And it's really back to the drawing board right now for Democrats in the Senate if they want to get some kind of voting reform bill through, which is an absolute must right now, especially looking at what's going on in the States. It has to happen. And so they're just back to the drawing board. I hope they don't just like give up on it because it's still very necessary. So we'll see what happens. And as always, keep you updated.
2: And for closing points, if anyone ever says to me again that my vote does not matter, I mean, hello. It matters because even we push so hard to get two of our favorite senators in the door this time around. But, like, can you imagine if everyone thought their vote counted and maybe showed up a little more at some of the other elections? Just saying.
1: Yeah. I also just – this makes me really think that the Senate, honestly, is just an unnecessary body in our government. <laughs> like, Congress is so much more representative of the country. Like, it's cut up by districts, so you have people from literally every corner – in every type of district and community in the country coming together in D.C. So true. It's a way more representative body. In the Senate, it's like two senators from every state. And, and what? Like the, this 50-50 split. Again, it's like, and then they have these rules that where like a majority can't even pass anything. It just, the Senate is really starting to make no type of sense to me. I don't know. That's just maybe a hot take. It's kind of a new take on my end, but it's kind of, this is what it's making me think about. That's an interesting take. It's food for thought.
2: It's food for thought because, right, like if you're thinking about like this, this, the whole design of, and this is actually kind of perfect for today's episode, but like you're thinking about like the design of our government and how it's supposed to represent checks and balances. How is the Senate actually creating that check and balance right now?
1: It's not. The Senate is really acting like, a huge cock block. And I mean, they created the biggest cock block in the world, Mitch McConnell. And now the whole body is acting like a f- huge cock
2: block. And so it's like, how is I understand like the idea of like, in a sense, right? Like if you're from the more conservative camp, and you like what's going on, in a sense, you feel as though the Senate is working for you, right? Like that is a check.
1: But it just doesn't work for anyone. Because even even before the election, when the Republicans held the control in the Senate, they couldn't get anything done either because of Democrats. So true. So it's like, We can't ever get things done through the Senate because of just the literally it's just like a numbers game in the Senate. And I just feel like Congress is so much more representative of the country and has just a better shot of like actually being a representative government because again, like we have people like Holly McCormack who's like running in, you know, like very rural district in North Georgia, and then there's people in new york city like everyone then comes together in our capital and governs again food for thought
2: yeah (laughs) interesting food for thought well guys think about it i'm curious if anyone has any takes but in the meantime subscribe rate review um of course hit us up with any of your questions in the dms email you know the deal and we will see you around these woods next Wednesday.
0: Hey, guys. Popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to com or visiting this episode's description. America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come.